James chapter 4. We're going to have a, uh, you know what we need? Uh, Shannon, can you make a note of this? I would like a wing back chair and a fireplace. <laughs> because I, I feel like what we're about to do here is to have a little bit of a fireside chat, if you know what I'm saying. Um, as, as we've, uh, if you, I don't know if you've noticed, but there's an election going on. Um, and I've just been, man, my heart has been so heavy, and I've been in prayer and just thought and, and more prayer and uh, more thinking. And, uh, and I, I saw some, I don't know, I saw some wisdom written 2,000 years ago that as it turns out, James might have been writing to the same people that we are today. It's the beauty of the Holy Spirit, isn't it? And the fallenness of man is that there is nothing new under the sun. He said, verse four, uh, chapter 4, verse 13, he says, now listen, which is, by the way, Bible talk for, you know what your problem is? Well, I'm going to tell you. You who say today or tomorrow will go do this or that city, will spend a year there and carry on business and make money, why do you not, why, do you not even know what will happen tomorrow? What is your life? You are like a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast and you brag, and all such boasting is evil. Anyone, then, who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. And then chapter 5, verse 1. Now listen, it's another one of those. You know what your problem is? You rich people weep and wail because of the misery that is coming upon you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. The corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workmen who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered innocent men who are not opposing you. In verse 7, be patient then, brothers, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop and how patient he is for the autumn and spring rains. You too be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against each other, brothers, or you'll be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophet's who spoke in the name of the Lord. And as you know, we consider blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. And the Lord is full of compassion and mercy. In verse 12, above all, brothers, do not swear by heaven nor by earth or by anything else. Let your yes be yes and your no, no, or you'll be condemned. Let's pray. Father, that's a pretty thick cut of meat pray that you'll help us to take the bite sizes of this and to digest what your word is for us today. 
pray for our brothers and sisters in Haiti today who continue to clean up and for our, our brothers and sisters around the world, for those in Iraq this morning being loved on by uh, Grady Pickett and his family. Lord, would you give them the provision and, the, uh, and what they need as well. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. I had a uh, really cool privilege a couple weeks ago to go hang out with a few of pastors and a guy named Ravi Zacharias. Anybody know who that is? Right, Ravi. Ravi is probably the smartest guy since all smart guys have ever been smart. At least smart. If you don't know Ravi, uh, Ravi has saved my faith more than once. Uh, he's uh, an apologist, is, is eloquent and uh, wise and so forth. Basically, an hour, it was myself and a few other pastors here in Nashville just machine gunning questions to Ravi. And Ravi does what Ravi does, which is just philosophical and uses words that I'm writing down because I want to use that in a sentence later. Um, <laughs> his command of the English language is unrivaled, right? So an hour of off-the-cuff wisdom until someone asks him about the election. And Ravi stumbles and starts grasping for words. And all I'm thinking is, man, if Ravi don't have this figured out, we're hosed. <laughs> that's not very spiritual, but that's what I was thinking. And it made me even more aware of how complex of a situation we find ourselves in in our current election cycle. It's not as simple as it seems. It's probably why the American Psychology, Psychological Association actually just released a study that said that 52% of Americans say that they are experiencing extreme amounts, severe amounts of anxiety and stress over the election, like unprecedented levels. And the younger you are, the more stressed you are. You'll probably not find this to be any news flash, but the more online you are, the more stressed you are. <laughs> Those who are not engaged on social media have a far less you know, level of, of anxiety about this. By the way, if you're wondering what Ravi said, you probably think, well, tell us what Ravi said. He, he took the scenic route. But he started talking about um, how progressive seculars, secularists uh, have been really good at the long game, he called it. They're really good at a long play strategy and that Christians have been really terrible at that, that we're really good at picking one little issue and camping out on it and then losing the war as a result of it. And his uses an example evolution that we as Christians parked on that issue and made a war out of that issue and in doing so lost the minds of an entire generation of college students. Um, which got my attention. And he goes on to say then that in this situation, we have a battle versus war thing going on. And he, uh, in, in his way, his eloquence said that on one side, we have a candidate who is in his words, and I quote, bereft of truth. And on the other side, we have one who is morally contemptible. And I'm thinking, well, which side? I mean, which one's which? <laughs> You have to narrow that down, Ravi. <laughs> and in his mind, he, he felt like that um, the platform was something that ought to be considered. He felt like that if you're, uh, if you're 
platforms and your policies specifically call for uh, not only uh, taking the life of an unborn child, but cheering it on, that that's probably not a platform that is one that he would uh, support. Um, and on the other side, he's saying, you know, maybe there's a chance that because someone has surrounded themselves with someone who could possibly be a Nehemiah character in their life, that maybe... But I want you to know that Ravi did not leave that day saying, do this or that. He didn't really know. And as I was reading these passages this week, I was like, oh man, James is talking to some people that are not unlike us. Because he's, if you read this closely, he's talking to three different groups of people, three separate categories that I think our politicians are talking to two of these categories. I think our politicians represent two of them. Because in the first uh, category, chapters 4, verses 13 through 18, uh, if you look at that, hey, we're going to do business here, we're going to go make money this, we're going to... It's the blue-collar, middle-class Joe the Plumbers. It's the, the, it's the middle class. He's talking about middle-class lifestyle here. I'm going to do this, I'm going to make some money, and I'm going to go to this city, I'm going to make some more money, like probably a traveling sales guy, maybe, maybe selling medical things, I don't know. But he's talking about the middle class. Because then he goes to chapter 5, verse 1, and he's like, uh, and you rich fat cats... There's a whole other category there. He starts talking to them. And he's like, look, if you, you, know, if you want to feel the burn, he talks about what that burn is going to feel like, and it has nothing to do with a presidential candidate from Vermont. And then he goes to the third category. Dear brothers and sisters, Christians, followers of Jesus. And I take from this that there are Three categories here, but we are all under the brothers and sisters, those who have called upon the name of the Lord, those whose identity is found in Christ, or the followers of Jesus. So whether you're 1%, a 99%, a somewhere in between percent, you, the Bible, the word, the kingdom of God knows no distinctions in that. We are all washed clean by the blood. Stand on the level playing field before the cross. But in chapter Four, verses 13, he starts talking to a, a people who are middle class, who are uh, unrepentant and not followers of Jesus. And he, he says, look, you're going to say, I'm going to go to this city, and I'm going to do this and that. We're going to make money. We're going to stay a while. We're going to go here. And he goes on to say, look, you don't even know what tomorrow is going to bring. How are you planning for next year? Now, on first glance, does that not feel like he's uh, rebuking them for planning, right? Doesn't it feel like planning is wrong? That's not what he's saying. You have to, the best way to interpret the Bible is what? Let the Bible interpret the Bible. Proverbs, James quotes Proverbs, you know, and here he knows that Proverbs will say that if you don't plan, you're a fool. Jesus, his big brother, <laughs> says, look, in Luke chapter 14, look, if you're going to build a building, you better have a uh, budget for that, and you better figure it out and plan it. If you're going to go to war, Jesus, we use another metaphor. You better make sure how many soldiers you have and how many soldiers they have. You better plan. So it's not the planning that is the sin. He says it in verse 16. It's the boasting that's the sin. Boasting. Which sounds kind of weird unless you understand really what ancient times, what boasting meant. How many of you saw uh, the Braveheart movie? Boasting in, in, the, in the culture that James was writing to. Remember when Mel Gibson is on the horse with a sword riding up and down the flank? They may take our lives, but they will never take our freedom. You know, and, and they're just like, yeah, we're going for it. Boasting in an ancient army 
was the way that they would say, look, we're going to go in and open up a can and we're going to go inside the walls. We're going to cut their entrails out we're gonna, because we're so powerful. And it was the way that they could get a group of grown men who were smarter than that to run headlong into battle and to die, knowing that some of them would die based upon their boasting. And so boasting... He says here, the boasting is what is the sin. The Bible speaks of boasting actually as its own theological category. Jeremiah 9 says, hey, if you're going to boast, don't boast in your strength. If you're, if you're rich, don't boast in your riches. If you're, if you're going to boast, boast in the fact that God knows your name. He talks about boasting in that way. Paul would speak of boasting. If, look, if I'm going to boast in anything, I'm going to boast in my sufferings. And he says here that it's the boasting that is the sin. Well, what makes it the sin. And, and when he says, look here, here's your problem. Let me tell you what your problem is, people. <laughs> this group of people, their problem was the illusion of control. The, the idea in their mind that I've got this figured out, that I've planned this out, I've mitigated the risk, and I have this illusion that I'm going to make this happen, and my boast that's going to cause me to charge the hill has nothing to do with Christ and everything to do with my hard work and my planning. And in the Western American culture, like no other culture in the history of that I'm aware of, has baked that into us. That if you work hard enough, you can do whatever you want to. American Idol proved that there were some children out there who worked really hard and it didn't matter. Because they didn't have that in them. They had nothing to do with their work. They could have worked hard, but if you didn't have the talent, it didn't matter. And the illusion of control is that if I do this and I work hard and I apply myself that I can be whatever I want to be is not only factually inaccurate, it is biblically incompatible. Because the Bible speaks of this whole other thing and this idea that we've spoken of here before and for the sake of time I won't dig deep into it. But in our culture, don't we have two things right now? There seems to be two disparate uh, polarities, which is the side that says... Uh, it's all up to you. That whatever you do, your life is, you know, we talked about the end of the uh, Back to the Future movie. Uh, that life is what you make it, so go make the best of it. And on the other side is this extreme wing of theology that says it doesn't even matter what you do because God has ordained it all anyway, so your choices don't matter. Two completely separate polar opposites, and the Bible doesn't know any of that. The Bible brings them both together and says that, hey, you know what? Your choices matter. Oh, and God is sovereign. We sang it. God is sovereign after all. He is sovereign after all. One of the greatest examples, I think, of this in the entire Bible is Acts chapter 2 when Peter gets up to preach. And he says to the people that literally had just crucified Jesus, by the way, Peter, who was cowering and chicken, is suddenly now full of the Spirit and full of power and stands up and says to the same group of people, that God, Acts chapter 2, God foreordained, God knew ahead of time, he predestined that Jesus was going to die and you killed him and you're wicked because of it. God knew it and you did it. Your choices mattered. You're wicked and God knew it. And what we think is that's a problem that has to be solved and I think the Bible says it's just a paradox that we manage. That your choices matter and that God is sovereign. My choice, and it, it's, it's called, if you're, if you're looking to be a theology nerd, it's called compatibilism in theology, and Calvinists don't use that as a compliment. But it's, 
the idea that God somehow is not smaller because of that, but he is bigger. And the fact that I can't get my puny mind wrapped around it has nothing to do whether or not it's true. My choices matter. And God is sovereign. And when I look to an election like this, I know that my choices matter. And God is sovereign. And by the way, the reason this is such a problem is that when I have the illusion of control, it causes two things, I think, paradoxically even here. And on the one hand, it causes me to be super over-arrogant because and, and, uh, I, I know how it should go. I got it figured out. I know what the future should look like. So there's an arrogance that is born out of that. And on the other hand, extreme anxiety because I know how the future should look and it's not looking like what I thought it should look like. My life is not turning out what I think it should turn out like. So it freaks me out and I've got extreme anxiety. And when I take the cross and say, oh, no, no, but in, in, in that, my life is now new and that God is sovereign and yet my life, my choices matter. And he says to these people here, if you think you're under control and you've got it figured out, you don't even know what tomorrow is going to bring. I, uh, I made some plans for this spring with my friend Terry. Uh, Terry, if you remember, was here last summer. Uh, he brought a bunch of his young men and women with him to uh, uh, help us. They basically did a lot of painting. He does internships. He's a good guy. I've known Terry for 25 years. He, he married my wife and I. And so we planned in the spring that, hey, Terry would come here. He would maybe talk to some of the teenagers, maybe you know, talk about doing some internship. And then this summer, they were going to bring their team back. We made these great plans for the summer and the spring. And Terry went home to be with Jesus last Wednesday in Guatemala while on a mission trip, uh, doing what he loved. And uh, our plans, we had to hold on to loosely. I, your life is like a mist, right? You don't know. So my overconfidence to say that this is what I'm going to do, it's not that I shouldn't plan, it's just holding on to the, it's the heart behind the plan is where the wickedness comes from, right? And whether you're overconfident or whether you're freaking out, either one, I think, is a clue that maybe you're, just like these middle class people 2,000 years ago, you think that you've got it under control and God is saying, you don't even know what tomorrow is going to bring, let alone next year. So make your plans, but hold on loosely to them. The anxiety of the future at the end of the day is that there's a real arrogance in that, isn't there, to say that I know how this should go? And there's a real humbling to say, oh, look, I, Jesus, I'm giving it all to you. You are the one. My life is a mist. There was a mist over our, uh, behind our house in the pasture behind our house this morning. There's a mist, and I want you to know if I went there right now, it would be gone. I mean, that's what he's saying. Hey, it's beautiful, but you can't take mist with you. You can't box it up. It's there for a while, and then it's gone. The problem of the illusion of control is me becoming the driver and me saying that I'm in charge and I'm going to figure this out instead of me saying there are things that are just beyond my control. And if you're not even a follower of Jesus, you, you, you already maybe know this intuitively. Did anybody read the book by Malcolm Gladwell, Outliers? He opens the book. Any hockey fans? Where are all my hockey people? Jim, I had one in first service. Or two northerners. Welcome to the Canadians. <laughs> Americans, these guys are citizens now. 
You'll be voting. Congratulations on this being your first election, by the way. Um, <laughs> good luck with that. Gladwell opens this book telling the story of the 2007 uh, Junior uh, Hockey League from Medicine Hat in Canada. And this is the elite team. And he tells the story of how this team is so incredible and people are wondering, how is it possible they're so good? And one of the, there's a psychologist from Canada that basically dives in and, and figures out that the vast majority of the best players of this team or any team in Canada were born in either January, February, or March. So the question, how are these guys so good? They must have worked harder than everybody else. He retells the story of this championship game and play by play, and instead of using names, uses birth dates. And you begin to immediately see January scored this, and February did that, and March crushed it and got the goal. And what he's saying is that the cutoff date for junior hockey in uh, Canada is January. So the kids that were older their first year of hockey than younger had a distinct advantage because the coaches paid more attention to them because they were more developed. And you know it is, between a 10 and 11, there's a huge difference. We've gone through three pant sizes this year from 10 to 11. <laughs> Our little man-child. <laughs> Not my pant size, anyway. <laughs> That's a whole other problem. <laughs> they get more attention and they could work just as hard, but the fact is, is because they were born at a certain place, completely beyond their control, it gave them an advantage. Their choices mattered, and there were things happening beyond their control. The illusion of control is what he's saying. If you're a part of the middle class who is not under the cross, not under Jesus, your idea that you've got it under control is at best a fool's errand. And then he turns to the fat cats, to the rich people, to the 1%. And, and I know it's super easy to sit and throw rocks at the 1% until you do the math and realize that if you're in America and you make more than $1,500 a month, you are globally part of the 1%. So congratulations, this is for you too. Let that sink in for just a minute. Keeping in mind, he's talking to a class of people that has nothing to do with Jesus' people. You can make a case uh, that uh, being uh, uh, prosperous is sinful, but it's not true because the Bible is full of people that were blessed financially and there is full of people who were not blessed financially, and both of them, based upon God's sovereignty, were equally blessed. The wealth isn't the sin. He never once says, yeah, you guys have all this, and you're, you're rich, and now you're, you all suck, and you're going to hell. He, he says instead it was not the illusion of control. They already had that illusion, but because they somehow made it, because now somehow you became one of the, the wow, I got the thing, and I got the Ferrari and the whole production, because I'm one of those I must have done something really huge to deserve this. I must have done something right and everyone else must have done it wrong. Therefore, what happens in that situation is that people have bad business practices and they treat their workers terrible because they somehow are... A, and in, in America, we don't see that as much or as eloquently. But man, you travel globally. In Haiti, we sent U.S. tax dollars in the 90s. We sent $10 billion to Haiti to help build their infrastructure. And I challenge anyone to find a penny's worth of stuff that was spent on it. It was given to the rich fat cats of Haiti. 
when our uh, president that we helped get appointed down there was finally deposed, they went into his basement and found like Walter White style pallets of cash in his basement that were U.S. dollars that he had taken, Aristide. And, and, but here's the thing, that doesn't seem very fair. And by the way, if you feel it's not fair, you're like, you're actually right. It's not, and it makes you angry. Which is why some of our political candidates have been so successful, because that isn't right, and we should fix that. And what the Bible clearly is telling us here is, oh, it's going to be fixed. It will be taken care of. He says to the workers who's, uh, who were ripped off, who were treated unfairly, who were abused, he says to them, look, be patient. To you brothers and sisters of conduit today, who are looking at our political system right now, who are maybe been a part of this healthcare thing right now where all of a sudden our, our, our thing went way up again and we have worse care and it's more expensive and probably everybody in this room is feeling that. He's saying, look, be patient. The Lord has heard your cries. Because the third group of people he talks to is not the people with an illusion of control or with the illusion of ownership of that I own this and it's mine as opposed to God owns it. He's talking to us and saying the reality is that I'm in charge and I'm coming back and it's going to be okay. Be patient. To the people that James was writing to, this would have been very hopeful language. I don't know if you've done much reading on the Roman Empire, but they weren't exactly known for their human rights. And he's saying to them, it's going to be okay. To, to not put your hope in the government ever getting fixed. To not put my hope, because when I do that, if you think about it, I don't know whether America can survive without Christianity, but I know that Christianity can survive without America. It's done quite, quite well for 2,000 years. And my point is, is that when I ask him to bless America, I really mean it, and I truly hope he does. When I ask him to protect our government and to protect our people, I genuinely mean it because I think that we are a great country and that great things are happening here. But I know this, that if I demand it of him and say, hey, God, keep, I may be asking him to keep a promise that he didn't make. Because in the illusion of control, I say, I think this is how the government should go and this is what should happen. But when I take a step back and say, but, but I get you, look, thousands of years into human history, this is a God that is sovereign and knows what he's doing and he's moving the places and the pieces and where he needs them to be. And it means that I can walk into a voting booth, actually this week, because I'm going to be out of the country during the election. <laughs> Some of you are going to walk into this church as you're voting, your polling place. We're a polling place in this election. Not sure we would have signed up for that had we known, but we, just kidding. We, we, this is a place where you're going to have to walk in here and you're going to have to make a decision of who you're going to vote for. But let me challenge you on this. Who you vote for and who you hitch your wagon to ought to be two different ideas entirely. Because if I'm hitching my wagon to the idea that the middle class is the, the engine of this and I'm hitching my hope to that, 
He's saying, they don't even know what tomorrow is going to bring. So how can I possibly hitch my wagon to that? If I'm going to hitch my wagon to the idea that, you know, down with the rich people. He's saying, do you, I mean, do you really want to hitch your wagon to the woe is me crowd? To the woe to you crowd? <laughs> like, if your horse is named woe to you, don't get on that horse. <laughs> Some wisdom there for your life. The only horse that I want to hitch my wagon to is a white one. And on his back will be Jesus. It says in his mouth will be a sword. It's the word of God. And he says that he is going to return and he will set everything right. And I don't know what that looks like. I feel like in some ways he's going to come back and look... We'll be able to say, it says in Isaiah, that the government will be on his shoulders. And I think we'll be able to look and say, look, we have tried it for thousands of years, every which way but loose. We've tried every economic, economic system, every government system, and we can't do this very well. So what you're doing is right and true. By the way, if you're a teenager or whatever, you hear, oh, righteous and true are your judgments. That's just Bible talk for dude. Mind blown. That was awesome, God. The way that you did that, I don't know how you figured that out, but that was awesome. And on that day, it says every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. He is the Lord over Obama. He is the Lord over Clinton. He is the Trump. Even Trump will have to park his plane and bow his knee And hear me say this, I don't think it's going to be like someone forcing him to his knees. It'll be a genuine like, wow, that was amazing. You were right. Even those who are, he says to go, they'll not be able to argue. They'll know that, wow, you were right. It was true. And that is the hope that we have. He says to you and to I, in chapter 5, verses 7 and on there, and we're going to talk next week. He says, are you troubled? Go start a Christian coalition. No, he doesn't. He says, are you troubled? Pray. We're going to talk about that next week. But today, he says, are, are you troubled? Take courage. Courage isn't something that just happens. It's something you take. Your, your, your uh, translation might say stand firm, whatever, but take courage. Not in our government, not in them getting it right again, not in, I, look, I swear, I don't know what will happen with our healthcare system. I don't know what's going to happen with our Supreme Court. I don't know, and neither do you. So we can walk into a voting booth and know that our vote matters and God is sovereign. And if I'm feeling anxious about it, it might be because I'm over here because my vote is sovereign and God kind of matters. I've got the roles reversed. But on November 9, I said it last week, I'll wake up and, and God will already have been awake and he won't be going, oh, Jesus, get over here, look at this. Do you see what? I can't believe, how did we not see that coming? It's just not how it's going to go. And you know what my prayer is, is that whatever it is, that it is for our good, for his glory. And I understand that hope is not a strategy. 
It's just fuel. And if you looked for me to say, who should you vote for today? I don't have that information for you. I think that you can be led by the Holy Spirit and ask yourself real questions. If a political party booed God at their convention, if a political party made part of their platform that a baby even up to eight, nine months should be able to be taken from its mother's womb and, and killed, you, you can do some math in your head of what God would ask you to do. But I also recognize that all along the line here, the candidates on either side, that there's something that the Lord has to really do a work in your hearts and to lead you into wisdom as to what you're going to do with it. But I know this much, that your vote matters and that God is sovereign. And for that, we can say, praise him. He is going to return. Every knee will bow. Every tongue confess. It will be okay. Be patient, just like a farmer. You know what a farmer, when they're patient, they can look at that and that dirt they got up this morning didn't look any different than it did the day before. And the next day, they, and it didn't happen again. And the rain hasn't come yet. And they can't make it rain because it's going to rain when it's going to rain. But he says, hey, like a farmer... And you know those old, if you've been around, go down to the College Grove Market and just watch those farmers, the old ones. They've been around a long time. They act like they ain't got a care in the world because they know it's going to rain when it's going to rain, just like it does every year. And he says, like a farmer waiting for the rain, you wait for Jesus in that way, living in this world and occupying until he comes. Because what we do matters, but knowing that he's going to figure this out and whatever his plans are, however this works out, we'll be able to look back and go, wow, mind blown. That was awesome, God. If you feel, if you're part of the 52% of Americans that are feeling extreme stress and anxiety because of this election, and if you are a follower of Jesus, I would like to give you permission on behalf of Jesus this morning to cut it out. You're scaring the children, <laughs> to quote Andy Stanley. It's going to be okay. And by okay, meaning that God will be in control. It just is. Hmm. Let's pray. Father, thank you. I, I take peace knowing that James was right into the same problems that we're writing about, that there's nothing new that you're not shocked or surprised. I pray today for, you said that we, you promised us a peace that surpassed understanding, not one that came from it. So we can look at this election and I don't understand it. I mean, Ravi, God, Ravi doesn't know. But we can still have peace, not from understanding, but one that comes from beyond the understanding of what these, what's going to happen. I'm grateful that you have chosen us for whatever reason we get to be in this country. Let us be good stewards of the freedom that you've given us as long as we have those freedoms. And if those freedoms are taken away, might we still enjoy the freedom in you in the face of that. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.